Herod is perplexed by Jesus. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Jesus feeds the 5,000. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. <clears throat> and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sandy. Let me pray before we look at this text. Father, we thank you once again for this time, and we thank you particularly for your word and for the way that you speak to us through it. Lord, we'd ask now you would humble us as we come under your word, that we would see it for the truth that it is, the authority that it has over our lives, and we would ask, Lord, that you would come and be our teacher. Lord, we'd ask that you, through this time, would root us in Christ and grow us in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? Perhaps one of the most recognized quotes from C.S. Lewis comes from his book, Mere Christianity, where Lewis writes, what should we make of this man Jesus? Himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men and stealing other men's money. Asinine foolishness is the description we should give to his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins are forgiven 
and he never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned in the matter, the person who was chiefly offended by all offenses. And this would make sense, Lewis writes, only if he really was God, whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. But in the mouth of any other speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Even Jesus' enemies, when they read the Gospels, Lewis continues, do not usually get the impression of silliness. Lest do the unbiased readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him, not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and, we- and meekness are the very last characteristics that we, would co- we- that we would attribute to someone who said and did the things that he did. Lewis says that he's trying to prevent us from saying something really foolish that people often say about Jesus, that we want to accept him as a good moral teacher, but we're not ready to accept his claim that he is, in fact, God. Based on what we find Jesus saying and doing in the gospel narratives, Jesus either was and is the Son of God, or he is a crazy man, or he is possessed by a demon, but he does not give us the opportunity to call him just a good moral teacher. Why do I read that long quote from C.S. Lewis for you? Because that is the question that we need to grapple with this morning, as Sandy read our passage. Who do you say that I am? That's the question that rings in our ears that we have to confront and answer as we confront Jesus in the Gospels this morning. The question from Jesus, and we need to be clear on this, is not so much, how much do you know about me? It's not, how good is your theology? It's not, how long have you been part of the church? Or how moral your life is? The question is, who is Jesus? We must answer that question before anything else falls into place. As Sandy read those verses for us this morning, I hope that we saw that this question, who is Jesus?, frames the passage. Herod asks it. Jesus asks it. We might think of this text as something like a a sandwich. The question asked by Herod, the question asked by Jesus, they're the bread, making it only fitting that the meat of the sandwich is this scene that takes place in Bethsaida where Jesus hosts the greatest picnic that we've ever seen. And Luke uses this scene of Jesus catering lunch to the crowd not only to help us answer the question, who is Jesus, but to help us to see the great provision that he offers us. This unmatched provision of Christ. And that's what I want us to think about this morning as we work through the text, how Jesus provides for our greatest need. And there's three signposts that are going to guide us along the way as we think about Jesus's provision. One, we want to think about the welcome that Jesus provides the satisfaction that Jesus provides. We see those as kind of the top and tail of this middle section of the passage. And lastly, we want to think about the sufficiency of Jesus for us. Those three things. 
So let's start by thinking about the welcome that Jesus provides in the passage, all while keeping in the back of your mind this question that is going to be in the background of this passage throughout, who is Jesus? Let's look at verses 10 and 11. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. The feeding of the 5,000 may be one of the most familiar stories to us in the Bible. This miracle, along with the resurrection of Jesus, they're the only two miracles that we find in all four gospel accounts. And our passage opens with the apostles returning to Jesus. So if we remember in Luke's account, in the beginning of chapter 9, Luke tells us how the disciples are, are sent out of town. They're sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus sends them into the world to, to get their feet wet in the ministry, so to speak. Well, now they're back after this expedition to tell Jesus everything that they'd done. And Luke doesn't give us a lot of detail about this, um, this, return, this return trip, but, but Mark actually does. In his gospel, he tells us that the apostles were so busy that they hadn't had a chance to, to sit down or eat. And that's kind of the context in which Jesus invites them to come away for this, this little retreat to the wilderness, a chance to recover and catch their breath and spend time with Jesus. One of the most frustrating experiences, and maybe you, you relate to this, is when we're anticipating rest. We've, we've even blocked a day off for some, some physical care to catch up on sleep, to, to get some exercise, to do some soul care, to spend time in the Lord in prayer and in the word, maybe journaling, reflecting, meditating. You've planned for this time. You need this time. We all need this time. And yet something or someone intrudes into that sacred space. Life happens. And that time that we thought we devoted to rest and to Sabbath is now filled with something else. I don't know about you, but rather than being frustrated, sometimes that just makes me want to cry. Um, So I do wonder how Jesus' friends felt when they went away with Jesus to Bethsaida for some R&R, only to find that they weren't the only ones that had followed Jesus there, that the crowds also came after them, and that the day of rest that the apostles thought they would get was not going to be so restful after all. Let's turn and look at Jesus, though. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus and see how he responds to that crowd. Luke tells us that he welcomed them, And I don't know if we should expect anything less from Jesus. If we look at this scene in Matthew or Mark's gospel, they actually give us a glimpse as to how Jesus welcomed this group of folks. That he welcomes them with compassion. And that word compassion that they used is almost exclusively used to describe the attitude of Jesus in the New Testament. It carries with it a depth of compassion that originates deep within a person, in the guts of a person. For Jesus, this welcome for the crowd, what goes beyond just ordinary feelings of sympathy, this is is a messianic compassion of Jesus. That that he would look upon those who had come and gathered there, as Mark says, like, like sheep that need a shepherd. 
The compassion that we see Jesus put forth into his ministry is the same compassion that, that's rooted in himself. A compassion to care for needy people. You know, our response to such demands on our time, intrusions into our rest, we're likely to tell people, listen, you need to wait. You just come back to me another time. And I want to say, there's some wisdom in that. To realize there's wisdom in realizing that we are not Jesus, that we cannot be like Jesus to other people. That there's wisdom in saying, I'm, I may not be the one that you need. But at the same time, God also does uproot us, in a sense, through inconveniences, that we might be messengers of grace and the gospel. And perhaps that's what some of us need, too. We get a little too ingrown, a little too complacent in ourselves. And so uprootedness, inconvenience, is actually a godsend. But we look at Jesus again, and he, he welcomes this crowd. He welcomes them to come. He's willing to be inconvenienced and interrupted. He welcomes the opportunity to preach the kingdom of God and perform its miracles. In the words of one commentator, the way Jesus welcomed these people reminds us that we can go to him at any time. That he'll listen to our cries for help. It also sets the pattern for our own ministries. That even when we're tired and weary, wanting to take a break from other people and their problems, we need to be ready to give them the gospel and to help them in the ways that we're able. Jesus was always ready to receive people in need. And when he received them, he was always able to help them. Luke tells us that Jesus cured anyone and everyone who needed healing as they came to him that day. There was not one single case that he couldn't resolve. This is a powerful testimony to his grace, that there is hope for everyone in Jesus because he can save anyone who comes to him for help. This is true for us spiritually as it was for that crowd medically. By the power of his grace, Jesus can forgive our sins, renew our spirits, comfort our sorrows. He's able to touch the wounded places in our hearts and make us whole. This is the welcome that Jesus provides, one full of compassion and grace. But Luke does make us wonder. He makes us wonder if the apostles saw it that way. Did they see Jesus' welcome as one full of compassion and grace? We read in verse 12, how as the day wore on, the twelve came to Jesus and rather abruptly say, send the crowds away to the surrounding villages and to the countrysides to find something to eat, to find lodging. We could take this one of two ways. Either they were trying to give them the boot or they were trying to be compassionate to them. Kind of think that they're trying to give them the boot. Maybe they were still just a bit upset that their retreat with Jesus was invaded by this mob. Because I think Jesus' response is really telling in this story. Jesus doesn't think twice about taking their request and turning it on its head. And he responds, no, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Look with me in verses 13 to 17 how this plays out. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, 
well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before, to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So how should we think about Jesus's statement to his disciples? You give them something to eat. As we said, it's often, it's often taken two ways, right? First, this command from Jesus is taken to imply that, or illustrate that his disciples had their own shortcomings, that they needed to depend on God, that they, that they were to see that they could never provide for what these people needed, and so had to look to Jesus to do it. And we wouldn't deny that that's true. We certainly have shortcomings. We have limitations and, and need to learn and practice dependence upon God. But perhaps, as Phil Riken points out, Jesus did intend for his disciples to feed the crowd. In Jesus' command, the emphasis falls on the you. The you give them something to eat. You do it. After all, this was the disciples who saw the need of the crowd. It was the disciples who suggested that Jesus send them away so that they could go get the provisions that they need. It was the disciples who we had just mentioned were out and about preaching and performing miracles in the power and the name of Jesus. Perhaps Jesus did, in fact, expect them to provide for these folks with the power and the authority that Jesus had provided them. Alas, we will never know. Because the disciples immediately appeal to the fact that they have insufficient means. We cannot do it with what we have in front of us. There's just five loaves and two fish. That will never be enough to feed this 5, 000, these 5,000 men, not to mention the women and the children who are probably with them. And so they turn to Jesus. And it's here that I want us to just slow down for a second and begin to point out the echoes of the Old Testament that we find in this passage. That we would remember that question that's lingering in the background of this text. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Because there are a lot of hypotheses out there about who Jesus might be. We heard them as Sandy read. John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Maybe one of the prophets of old, like Moses. These hypotheses are floating out there about who Jesus might be. And they signal us to perhaps pay attention to what Jesus is doing here to look closely at what Luke is saying as Jesus hosts this great picnic in the wilderness? Let me give you an example. Based on what we just looked at with Jesus and his disciples, him, him saying, you give them something to eat. There's an interesting parallel that we find in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 and 44, where we find a story about the prophet Elijah in which a man comes and brings Elijah 20 loaves of bread. And he brings him fruit and grain, and Elijah instructs his servant to give the food to the hundred or so men who were with them. And can you guess what the servant's response was? You're on the edge of your seats. <laughs> 20 loaves. 20 loaves is not going to feed a hundred guys. That's not enough. To which Elijah says, give them to the men 
that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And so this is what Elijah's servant did. And all the men ate, and they had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Do we hear the echo in our passage? Do we hear the echo? It's reverberating. That's not the only echo we hear, though. Look at what Jesus does next in, in Luke 19, 9, 14. The apostles insist that they don't have enough food to feed the crowd, and Jesus doesn't argue with them. He simply instructs his friends to help the folks get situated on the grass in groups of about 50 each. That's an interesting phrase, 50 each. It's actually a pretty unique clue that Luke gives us. James Edwards is a commentator. He notes that the number 50 actually occurs a lot in the, in the Greek Bible. It occurs 160 times. But the, the phrase 50 each, it appears only one other place. 1 Kings 18, verse 13, Obadiah tells Elijah that he has supplied food and water to 50 each of the prophets of the Lord during the famine in the land while Ahab and Jezebel were trying to kill them. The use of 50 each is yet another clue that Luke is leaving behind to help us see the significance of this wilderness picnic in relation to Jesus' identity. There's one more, one major Old Testament echo that we need to see. So Jesus has the 5,000 plus folks sitting in groups on the grass of about 50 each, after which he takes five loaves and two fish. And he looks up to heaven and he blesses the meal, breaks the loaves, gives them to his disciples to set before the crowd, and they were all satisfied. Five loaves of bread fed 5,000 plus people. In what other place in our Bible do we find bread raining down from heaven to, fit, to feed a needy crowd? Sonia's raising her hand in the back. <laughs> in, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Exodus, God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, but soon the people out in the wilderness were complaining they didn't have any food, so God in Exodus 16.4, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people in Luke 9 are again a wilderness people without food. And Jesus looks up to heaven, and bread miraculously comes down. Bread without end, bread in abundance to satisfy the needy crowd. What do we, what do, we do with all this? What are all these clues meant to, help us, meant to help us to see? How do they answer that nagging question, who is, who is this Jesus? Well, for one, the scene shows us that Jesus is the one who can provide richly for his people. He provides in a way that the ministry of Elijah or Elisha never could. When Jesus provides a feast for his people, it's abundant. Luke stresses that everyone who was there ate and they were satisfied. And even after everyone ate, ate as much as they wanted, bellies full, there was still plenty left over. Jesus' resources never run dry. But perhaps one of the most striking clues is this parallel that Luke makes between Jesus being the greater Moses. The Lord said to Israel in the days of Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. 
Only rather than leading his people out of slavery to a nation the way Moses had, Jesus would free God's people from slavery to sin and death by dying for them and rising from the grave for their freedom. The one thing that we can't escape in this passage is the power and the provision of God. Often we find ourselves in the position of the disciples in this passage, hand-tied by what we see in front of us or what we don't see in front of us. We forget the power and provision of God. The disciples who saw only five loaves and two fish in front of them saw no conceivable way to provide for the needs of this crowd, and yet they did not consider their greatest asset, the Lord. Perhaps we are guilty of doubting what God is able to do. We look at a situation that seems utterly hopeless and we think, is this too much? Is it, is it too big even, even for God? It's not. So what might happen if we changed our perspective so that our prayers and our ambitions were in line with what God himself has told us that he is capable of doing rather than the limitations that we see in our own circumstances. Wouldn't this change in perspective actually bring more glory to God, acknowledging what he is able to do, anticipating what it is that he might do? Doesn't this change actually lead us to pray more boldly, knowing that God has no limitations? Doesn't it lead us to find greater joy in the Lord and, and anticipating the amazement of just being in all of what he's done and the great provisions that he provides for his people? Friends, let us not doubt what God can do, but anticipate great things from him. We've almost reached the end here. Are we ready to answer the question yet? Who is Jesus? Perhaps we could say that he is one and the same as the God of the Old Testament who cares and provides for his people. Maybe we could say that. If we said that, we would be right. Jesus is certainly God, the great provider. The story makes that evidently clear. But, but do we see the depth of grace in Jesus' provision for us? Do we see the abundance of his compassion for his people? After this wilderness picnic, we finally get the disciples' answer to the question that Herod and Jesus were asking. We see it in verses 18 to 20. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Who do you say that I am? You, Jesus, you are the Christ. When we began looking at this passage this morning, we said, this is the question that we all need to answer. We all need to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis helped us in that quote to see we really have maybe three options open to us based on what Jesus says and does in the Gospels. Jesus can be a lunatic, he can be possessed, or he can be, as he says, God. The only thing we can't say is that he's just a wise teacher or an all-around good guy. 
But in fact, one of the most critical pieces of evidence that we have to look at to answer this question doesn't even come in the verses that we've read, but it immediately after. In verse 22, after Peter's confession, Jesus tells his disciples how he must suffer and be rejected and die and rise again. And C.S. Lewis, following on the heels of what we've already seen from him, makes a good observation about all this. He says, it seems obvious to me that Jesus was neither a lunatic nor a demon. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God, that God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. And now what was the purpose of it all? What did he come to do? To teach? As soon as we look into the New Testament or any other Christian writing, you will find that they are constantly talking about something different. They're talking about his death and his coming to life again. It is obvious that Christians think the chief point of the story lies here. They think the main thing that Jesus came to earth to do was to suffer and be killed. If we were to look at Luke's gospel from a bird's eye view, we would see the gospel writer doing something very interesting beginning with our passage. Something that not only clues us into who Jesus is, but why Jesus came. There are three places in Luke's gospel where we're told that Jesus takes bread, thanks God for it, breaks it, and gives it to people. The first is found right here in chapter 9, verse 16. The second occurs in Luke twenty-two nineteen when Jesus is eating that final Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The third place comes just a few chapters later in Luke 24, 30 and 31. After Jesus' resurrection, he's having a meal in Emmaus with some friends he met along the road. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Each of these instances, Luke uses this formula of took, blessed, broke, gave to show a profound recognition of Jesus' identity and his mission. Luke 9, this formula points us to Jesus, the Christ of God, as Peter confesses him to be God's Messiah who has come as God in the flesh to save us from sin, to provide for our greatest need. Luke 22, this formula points us to Jesus, the Christ who must suffer and die for our sins, whose body like that bread must be broken for us that the penalty of sin might be paid in full through his sacrifice. That by faith we would be reconciled to God. In Luke 24, this formula points us to Jesus, who is the Christ who stands in victory over the grave. Jesus, who has risen as the first fruits of a new creation, assuring us that sin has been defeated. That by faith we are resurrection people. That we stand in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ before God, and given new life as he himself is alive. Now and into eternity we stand in the work of Jesus. It is true. Jesus is our great provider and that he has provided for our greatest need freedom from sin and death and life with God. And how does he do it? 
through himself. That's how he does it. He, as John writes in his gospel, he is the bread of life, the one who is utterly sufficient for us in every way. So for some of us here this morning, or or perhaps watching from home, you might be still wrestling with this question, who is Jesus? And I pray that you've seen in this passage that Jesus is the one that your soul ultimately longs for, who has provided himself to save you from sin and restore you to God. But I imagine that for many of us here and watching from home, we've settled on that question, who is Jesus? We with Peter would confess, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. And for us who answer in that way, we must ask, are we then convinced of Jesus' sufficiency for us? Are we convinced of Christ's sufficiency for us, that he has provided indeed for our greatest need by giving himself up for us? Or do you still find yourself looking for something else to satisfy, something other than Jesus, something else to fulfill your longings? This question, who is Jesus, it forces all of us, no matter who we are, to answer the question. It forces us to look to Christ. Do we see him as the one who is sufficient, who has sufficiently and abundantly provided the grace of God for needy, sinful people like us? Do we see how today and every day on into eternity, his provision is sufficient for you and for me? Do we see this? Let me pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are utterly sufficient, and in your word, you prove that to us again and again, and we thank you for this passage, in which we are showed in such vivid imagery the depth of your provision, the sufficiency of your provision, the abundance of your provision. Lord, that you are the one who we need, who we are longing for, looking for. Help us, Lord to see it and to rest in your finished work and to rest in your grace. We ask this in your precious name.